Well, y'all, this has been a, uh, a much more of a treat than I anticipated, uh, to be honest. Um, Job is one of those books that when, when you get ready to teach it, you go, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> I mean, it, it wasn't in the league of when Matt said, hey, why don't you do an entire summer on sin? Um, which was, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, that, was, that was tough, you know, that was, uh, that was a little more than I needed there. Uh, but uh, the, I feel like I'm reverberating a little bit, is it? Um, Brian, can you turn us down just a hair? Um, the, uh, uh, but, you know, Job is one of those uh, books that it's just, there's, there's no way to come out of it unscathed. Um, and so uh, I knew that we were going to have to go through some difficult waters along the way. Um, but uh, it's been, uh, if, if, I don't know if enjoyable is exactly the right word to, uh, to, to say for uh, how it has been, but it has been uh, profitable. Uh, at least, my my students sometimes will ask me, well, what, you know, what's your favorite movie or something, and I'll I'll say, well, it's hard to pick, but you know, uh, it, one of them that I'll usually list in my top five or so would be Schindler's List, but you have to kind of you know sort of think about that one in a couple of ways. It's not favorite is not really the right way to put it. Um, you know, one of the best done and the most moving and so forth, but uh, favorite is uh, a hard call uh, on that one. Um, the, uh, and by the way, I've, I've, I've ordered brunch, it'll be coming, um, but it, it's only for the people who were bold enough to sit at the round table, so thankfully, only about eight of you uh, will I actually have to cover today, <laughs> so... Well, uh, in any case, we have, we've come a long way uh, in this study to review a, a little bit. We started off with the Job of the prose prologue, um, and that Job, uh, it, my goodness, He's a saint, so much so that it's hard to figure out if he's really human or not, uh, because uh, he, you know, it, it starts off, there once was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and goes on to just talk about how he, he's the greatest man of all the East, but not only is he a great man, he also is a good man. Um, that he does just-in-case sacrifices for his kids, because uh, who knows, they, they may have cursed God in their hearts, uh, and so he offers those kinds of sacrifices. It's kind of the reverse of the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the parent that would give their child a spanking every Saturday, because surely they had done something you know, during the week. Well, that's a good way to like, snuff out that little uh, you know, um, you know, youthful spirit there. Job's the opposite. Uh, he thinks, well, maybe they've done something, and so I'll, I'll do a sacrifice on their behalf just in case. And, and not just that, but the narrator says that he's upright, blameless, fears God, turns away from evil, and God says it twice. So as to make sure that as tempted as we are to go all Presbyterian on Job and say, you know, total depravity, that's where we start, Maybe, but at least from the narrator and God's position, that the way we have to read this book is that he is upright, blameless, fears God, turns away from evil. It's even, I think, interesting that the way God puts it is upright, blameless, fears God, not fears me, and turns away from evil, so as to give Job's in, or the, uh, God's endorsement of what the narrator had said. So that the narrator is going to be right there. Job is righteous to a fault. And when these terrible cataclysms happen to him, he says, well, God gives, God takes away, praise God. Shouldn't, shouldn't we get good things at the hand of God and bad things too? 
And so Job is this uh, seemingly larger-than-life character. We, we did an entire week on the Satan, um, which uh, was, it's always, it's kind of a perverse way to put this, always a fun topic uh, to delve into, just because it's so mysterious, especially when we're in the Hebrew Bible. He's this mysterious figure. He, he plays, uh, and I, I love describing it this way, devil's advocate. Um, is his job that if somebody advances the righteousness of somebody, it's, it's the Satan's job to take the other position um, and to say, well, wait, wait a minute, have you considered such and such? Um, and so that's his role. He takes on a much larger role in the rest of Christian interpretation of the book that very quickly the debate becomes not Job versus God, but Job versus Satan. And so that way they, they make it a much more palatable reading by having Job fight against Satan. And um, that way we don't have to deal with the whole issue of uh, what's going on between Job and God. The Satan does raise the most penetrating question in the book, though. His question is, yeah, does Job serve God for nothing? That word there in Hebrew, chinam. Does he serve God? Isn't he sort of biased in his service? He serves you because he gets all these wonderful toys from you. What if you take away the stuff? Will he still serve? It's the most haunting question in the whole book because it's the one that shines the magnifying glass. I don't think, I think that's a mixed metaphor there. Turns the magnifying glass, shall we say, onto our, our own motivations for our life of faith. But, why, why do we serve God? And what would it take for us not to serve God? That is the issue that the Satan is raising. Uh, we, we spent a week on Job's wife, which is a lot, considering that she only has six words in the entire book. Um, and uh, I think it's too much to pin a charge of misogyny on Job, given that there's only one or two verses associated with her. Uh, but she does raise an interesting question. And the question is, Job, why don't you just get it over with? Bless God, which is what she really says. Maybe she means curse God. It's hard to tell in there because it's a, a, a kind of euphemism that they use. Why don't you just bless God and get it over with? Which uh, does raise the whole issue of uh, suicide in the book there. I, in a, a different version of these notes, I have that, uh, those lines from Hamlet. Uh, in there, because it's that same, you know, whether, t whether it is nobler to, you know, endure the, the I'm going to misquote Hamlet here, but the outrageous slings and fortunes and so forth, you know, that, that issue when he says to be or not to be, that's his question is, should I just end it all uh, here? Uh, Ballantyne, in a different article, he doesn't do it in, uh, in the book that I suggested to you, he, he plays on that, those lines from Hamlet and, and has it uh, modified a little bit, to pray or not to pray. That is the question. Um, you know, should he just, you know, endure these, you know, slings and arrows or just, just end it all? Why doesn't Job end it all? He so wishes to die. He's lost everything. He's certainly in a place where people have considered it before. And yet he doesn't take that path. Um, he, he refuses to go there. We talked a good bit about the Job of the Dialogues. You can never talk enough about the Job of the Dialogues because the dialogue goes on for like 38 chapters uh, in there. And so there is an awful lot to be said. Job curses the day of his birth. He curses the night of his conception. It is such a, a powerful passage there in Job chapter 3. Job is willing to tear down the foundations of creation 
all around him if that's what it takes to stop his suffering. And yet Job won't do what the Satan said he would do. What the Satan said was that Job would curse you. If you take all his stuff away, then he will curse you. And he took his stuff away, and he didn't. He said, well, if you take his health away, then he'll curse you. And Job steadfastly refused to do that. He cursed, but he didn't curse God. He cursed the day of his own birth and the night of his own conception. And this is what sort of makes the story work, is that what do you do when Job has cursed, but he hasn't cursed God, but has instead cursed God? essentially, his own existence. And there's a turn in chapter 3 where he moves from cursing the day of his birth and the night of his conception to, well, no longer cursing, but lamenting. And if Job is wrong for lamenting, boy, Job stands in good company because there are more lament psalms than there are any other kind of psalms in the book of Psalms. And not just that, but there are people who lament all through the Scriptures, including Jesus who laments on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What, well, how will God respond to this if what Job has done is instead of curse, but instead lamented there? Well, Job's comforters show up. We spent a week dealing with Job's comforters. Uh, the comforters were great as long as Job was silent. As soon as Job began to talk, that was when they had a problem. Um, and so they sat there for a week. They were apparently wonderful uh, comforters. Uh, they were quite moved by Job's distresses. And so they, they threw dust in the air and they sat in the ashes with Job. And they mourned over uh, his own losses. They sat there in silence because they saw that his suffering was very great is the way that the text puts it. But no sooner does Job begin to curse the day of his birth and to lament to God, than they kick in with a great deal of theological righteousness. And if Job is in good company with his lamenting, well, they're in good company with their theology that they began to trot out to him. They need only turn to the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, there's that, uh, that long phrase I told you about, the Deuteronomistic theology of reward and punishment. I, I typed in into my notes as I was doing this very lesson, DTRP, and magically, Bill Gates filled out Deuteronomistic theology of reward and punishment for me because it's too much to type, but it's a simple theology. If you obey, you get blessed. If you disobey, you get cursed. Job, if, if you're cursed, it's because you disobeyed. There's, there's no, if in doubt, see option one, which was Deuteronomistic theology of reward and punishment. There's no other way around this, Job. They don't like it when Job begins to question this system or to question whether this system is working they are fine when Job is silent. They are outraged when Job actually begins to speak. And so they go back and forth, back and forth, but they just cannot wear him down. He refuses to give an inch. In fact, I would say that Job's denials of their assessment of his situation become more and more vehement the further into the book that he goes. Uh, so that uh, eventually, Job is going to offer his own self-curse if I have done any of these things, and my goodness, what a catalog of things he lists. If I've done any of them, then God, strike me. Take me. And this is what, in the context of the narrative, sort of puts God in a bind. 
that God is going to have to respond. If Job hasn't done these things, then Job will have shown God to be unjust in punishing him. And if Job has done these things, then he will have shown God to be, for want of a better term, ignorant because he assessed Job's character incorrectly. When he said, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. Upright, blameless, fears God, turns away from evil. And so God is forced to, in the narrative, respond. And boy, does he respond. Um, I have heard it on numerous occasions said concerning my Israel trip. I need not even look at the people who are out there whose heads are going to begin to, uh, to nod in agreement that it can be a little bit like trying to drink from a fire hose. Yes, well thought. Um, that there's, there's a lot that, that comes, and it's pretty quick. Um, and it's actually a lot of fun sometimes when somebody will, will uh, write up notes concerning something that I said, and I don't know exactly how to you know, put it. I, I'll come up with an illustration. It's a little bit. Well, you remember when the French gave the Golden Gate Bridge to New York City, and they stuck it, you know, next to uh, the, the Washington Monument. Well, that's where it was. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll look back at people's notes from the trips and go, yeah, that's about what they said. <laughs> because there was so much that was coming at one time that it was hard to absorb. When God gets ready to speak to Job, he speaks from the whirlwind. And it's not just that he speaks out of the whirlwind. The whirlwind comes with it. There is a whirlwind of questions that assault Job, a torrent of questions. Where were you when I did this and when I did that and when I did the other? Do you know how this happens or how this happens? How does this or how does that? They are questions that Job simply has no ability to answer. It's interesting that some of the questions we actually can answer today. Because they're questions that emerge from, you know, that time, that day. And they, they're fascinating if you look at them obliquely because they're, they're showing where the contours of scientific ignorance were in that day. We would probably ask different questions today if we were writing this passage. I've been working my way through uh, Moby Dick again because Moby Dick is absolutely just filled with Jobin references in there. I'm convinced that there's something that connects Job and Ahab. Uh, in, in the two because of their determination that I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep pursuing this, uh, you know, even with Job's line, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. There's some connection there between Ahab. I'm going to continue on this uh, quest. Uh, I've, got to, I've got to deal with that more. Ballantyne, by the way, does a, a good job with dealing with uh, Moby Dick. Um, the, uh, the, the, the issue that Job has here is that uh, these are questions that maybe he can't answer, but today some of them we can. But then again, there are some that we can't, and many that are irrelevant to the issue at hand, seemingly. Job's issue has never been about whether God was powerful. Job was all too convinced of the fact that, jo that God was powerful. What Job has been wrestling with is, is God just? And it doesn't do him any good at all to find out that God knows how snow happens or to find out that God is intimately aware of when mountain goats give birth. That's not what Job's been struggling with. What Job has been struggling with is, I haven't done anything to deserve the treatment that I'm getting. 
And, and so Job's response to the divine speech is basically to just give up. He says, uh, in chapter 40, verse 3, Job answered the Lord, See, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, but I will not answer twice, but will proceed no further. And so Job has his fears realized. What he thought would happen, would happen has happened. He had said in Job 9, how can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am innocent, I cannot answer him. I can only appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, which is what happens, right? I don't believe he would listen to my voice. If it's a contest of strength, he's the strong one. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am innocent, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. God has shown up in the first speech and seemingly bullied Job into submission. And so Job gives up. He says, fine, I'll, I'll just be quiet. It's, a, it's one of our tougher parenting moments, I imagine, when we know that we have bullied our own children. If you think back to the mistakes that you made as a parent, one that will hurt your heart more than any other is almost all of us have a moment we can look back to where we didn't justify ourselves, and instead we just overpowered our kids. This is where Job is. Job. <laughs> Job has just been bullied into silence. And so he says, fine. I give up. Now, if that were what God wanted was just to shut Job up, is to say, I'm God, you're not, who do you think you are talking to me? Well, then the book should end at that point. And it could end, we could either have Job, uh, you know, be restored and say, I, I won. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and so he can give to Job, uh, you know, his stuff back if that's what he wants to. Or he could leave Job in distress if that's what he wants to. He could kill Job. He could do whatever he wants to Job, really, at that point, if that were the point. If the point of the book, if the point of the first divine speech were merely to bully Job into silence. And that is why I think the second divine speech is actually the key to the whole book. The second divine speech comes on the heels of Job saying, I give up, I'll be quiet. And God seems not to have been satisfied with that response. And the way that you can tell that he's not satisfied with the response is because the three images that come up in the second divine speech are all the very antithesis of silence. They are arrogant, bold creatures who fight. 
God raises first this kingly image. He tells Job, stand up like a king, act like a hero, look arrogantly above those who are beneath you, uh, defeat your enemies. This is, this is not the kind of image that normally we, we see ourselves commanded to take on, that of a king. And yet that's what Job is commanded to do. The next image is that behemoth, the one that we don't know that much about. It mixes these natural and supernatural elements together. But the emphasis on this animal is its immovability and its confidence. Chapter 40 says, Even if the river is turbulent, it is not frightened. It is confident, though Jordan itself should rush into its mouth. Can one take it with hooks or pierce its nose with a snare? This is an animal that is serenely confident that it cannot be defeated. And then the ultimate example to which the whole second speech moves is the Leviathan. This is the ultimate example of defiance. I, I can't tell you how odd it is that Job would sing the praises of this animal. There's a certain kind of speech in Hebrew, it's a goes by an Arabic name, but it's called a, a watsuf. And a watsuf is where you take something and you just sit there and you, you list its virtues and praise it. One of the places where this comes up the most is in the Song of Songs. Um, so I, I, I doubt many of you have read the Song of Songs recently. I, I love using it to uh, inflict upon my students. Um, you know, as you know, the, they sit there and take, for example, the bride, and he just goes. I mean, he starts with her hair, and then deals with her, her, her eyes, and then it's her lips, and then it's her breasts, and then it just keeps going. And it just, it just regales us with the praises of this particular woman. And the woman does the same thing for the man. It goes through and just talks about how, you know, how handsome he is. It's this list of praises. Leviathan is described here using a watsuf. It goes through and, and how can one praise this entity? All it does is fight God. That's its only role. It's in the ancient Near East. This is the thing that Marduk fights if you're in Babylon. It is what Baal fights if you're in Canaan. It's what Perseus fights if you're trying to rescue Andromeda. This is this sea creature, this sea dragon that fights God. Psalm 74, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the dragons in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. Isaiah 27, on that day the Lord with his cruel and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He will kill the dragon that is in the sea. Leviathan, um, sometimes it's just called a dragon. Sometimes it goes by a different name, Rahav. Uh, Job has a couple of references. By his power he stilled the sea. By his understanding he struck down Rahav. By his uh, wind the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. It's everywhere. God fights against this dragon. This dragon fights against God. Why praise this beast whose sole role is to fight God? I think it's because that's what God wants Job to do. These second set of images, this second set of images, this king, this behemoth, this leviathan, is there to say to Job, I don't want you to be quiet. I want you to keep fighting. 
I want you to keep coming after me. I want you to keep lamenting. The only thing that God seems not to like in Job's response is when Job stops responding. He wants him to continue to fight. And that's what brings us to the very last chapter of the book. It's Job chapter 42. Let me read the first six verses for you. Then Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? I have uttered what I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you declare to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I don't think that last verse works. It's the crux interpretum of the entire book. What in the world does it mean for Job to say that he despises himself and he repents in dust and ashes? Well, I've given you a handout. There may be some extras that are floating around. Are there any extras around? Or I know we have some folks that came in later. Maybe some couples could share and, and make sure that others get it as well. Uh, you'll notice on the, the handout there, that the translations are largely in agreement in terms of how they should translate this verse. Uh, the New Revised Standard, you'll see there on the handout, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The New International Version has the same thing. The, uh, with the one that says TNK there, that's the Jewish Publication Society version. Uh, Therefore I recant and relent. Being but dust and ashes, that's a little different. Tells us there is some play here. The venerable King James, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And the new uh, English Standard Version, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. There are a number of problems with this translation. So the first problem, I would say, is it doesn't seem to fit what precedes. Okay, uh, Dust and ashes is a metaphor uh, in the Bible for silence. In fact, you remember at the beginning of the book that when the friends show up, they, they throw dust in the air and they sit with Job in the ash heap and it says they're silent for seven days while he suffers. Uh, the other, only other time where you see this in Scripture is in uh, Genesis chapter 18 when Abraham is arguing with God over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, he's, he says, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to venture to speak one more time, though I am but dust and ashes. In other words, I realize, Lord, I should be quiet, but I just can't. Dust and ashes means silent, but if, if God wanted Job to be silent, then why the second divine speech? Why hold up the image of the king and the behemoth and Leviathan? In fact, what God seems to be dissatisfied with is the silence. That's what provokes the second speech. It, it doesn't make sense for Job to say, fine, I repent. It also doesn't seem to fit what follows in the text. This is, uh, this is chapter 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Tamanite, My wrath is kindled against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. 
if Job's repenting, then Job's saying, I was wrong and the friends were right. God does not take that view. God says the friends were wrong and Job was right. You can't read the book in such a way, you can't read the conclusion of the book in such a way that you end up putting God on the side of the friends against Job. God has to somehow end up on the side of Job against the friends here. They are the ones who have not spoken rightly. Now, you, you do have to kind of stop and say, well, wait a minute, God, poor Lephos, what did I do? I was just quoting Deuteronomy. <laughs> you know, haven't you ever heard of the Deuteronomistic theology of reward and punishment, God? Dr. Leonard talks about it all the time. Um, it's, how could I be wrong? I mean, they, all they did was, was to emphasize God's righteousness and that Job had it coming. How could, how could we be wrong? And yet God does not take their side. Job cannot repent and take up the friend's position. I think it's actually important in here as well to note there are some subtle admissions in the epilogue that Job has been treated unfairly. One of those is in verse 8. Listen to this verse. Right after God has said, uh, my, my wrath is kindled against you, get Job to pray for you. Take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has done. All right, so take a look at your handout there. Because the text does not actually say, this is toward the bottom of the handout, it does not actually say that I will uh, not deal with you according to your folly. What it says, if you look at uh, where it says Job 42, uh, 8b in Hebrew, it says, and Job, my servant, he will pray for you. Surely his faith's, uh, face I will lift. That's just a Hebrew expression for saying I'll, you know, it's kind of like what you do with your kids, you know, when you lift up their face when they're downcast. I'll accept what he has said, lest I deal with y'all. It's very important. Hebrew does have y'all um, in there. It's, we've been trying to tell the rest of the civilized world for some time um, that imachem, when it says there, chem is y'all. Um, lest I deal with y'all foolishly. There is no you on the word foolish. It does not say according to your folly or your foolishness. It says, you better get Job to pray for you because I'll hear his prayer and not act foolishly toward you. There's a little bit of an admission like I did with Job. Now, I know we look at this and, well, it's outrageous. Who, who would say such a thing? I don't know, but the Hebrew says it. There's a subtle admission here. Yeah, Job has been treated in an outrageous fashion. And not just that, but you remember what Job gets once the book tidies itself up. He's restored double for all the things that were taken away. Restoring double is what happens when you have taken something away from someone when you shouldn't have. When you steal an ox, for example, in Exodus 22, when the animal, whether ox or donkey or sheep, is found alive in the thief's possession, the thief shall pay double. God gives back double to Job because he shouldn't have taken away the stuff from Job to begin with. There are these hints in here 
that Job has been more sinned against than sinning. If we wanted to put it that way, Job has been innocent. Job has been treated unfairly. Friends, you guys were wrong when you tried to make Job guilty. There were other issues at play here and not his guilt. So lastly on this point, that translation, I repent in dust and ashes, doesn't fit what the Hebrew actually says. So look at the top, or, or let's say the middle of the handout. Do you see where it says, um, and uh, I, I was going to get Matt to come up here and read this, but he, he's got laryngitis, he said. Um, when it says, um, when it says that, that alchein just means therefore. When it says, emos, well, you, you notice most of those translations say, I despise myself. Well, there's something missing. The word myself. It doesn't say I despise myself. It just says I reject. And not just do I reject. I reject v'nichamti and I, well, it, it could be repent. It could also be I am comforted. And then you notice where it says, and I, I, I in most translations, I repent in dust and ashes. Yeah, there's a word missing. The word in. Hebrew has a couple of different ways of saying in, none of which appear in this verse. What appears instead is that word all, where it says upon or concerning dust and ashes. In other words, there's two different ways that we could take this, this line. One is I, I despise and I am comforted upon dust and ashes. And that is the way a lot of people take the verse is they say, okay, now that God has shown up, Job says, well, I don't understand everything, but I'm comforted because I had the chance to see you and I know that you're still involved with my life. I think the problem with this one is you can't do anything with the despise part, the reject part. It works fine to say I'm comforted on dust and ashes, um, but it doesn't help. It, it leaves that I, I reject or I despise hanging out there. And so I tend to follow Ballantyne's view instead, which says, I despise and repent concerning my dust and ashes. Remember what dust and ashes was? Silence. Job is saying, okay, God, if what you want from me is not for me to be silent but to fight, then I change my mind. I repent of that moment when I went silent. I will reject my silence, and I will continue to fight. I'll continue to speak. I'll continue to argue. I will continue to do all of those things. I think that's what makes sense of verse 4, which I read to you before. Twice, God has said to Job in the divine speeches, Hear, and I will speak. I'll question you, and you answer me. And then there's that torrent of questions. In Job's final words, he says to God, Okay, if this is what you want, and Job says back to God, Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you declare to me. God has opened himself up and said, I don't want you to be silent. I want you to act like a king, to act like behemoth, to act like Leviathan. Keep fighting. I can take it. And Job says, okay, hear and I will speak. I'll question you and you answer me. I repent. I reject 
my dust and ashes, that moment when I went silent. And that's the moment at which the book ends. Because God then turns to the friends and says, Job has spoken rightly concerning me, not you. There's a, uh, it's a wonderful movie, and I think I probably actually told you about this in a different context when we were dealing with Psalms, but uh, the, the movie is a, a, a great uh, M. Night Shyamalan movie called Signs. Um, and uh, it, it's, uh, if you haven't seen it, I, I urge you to see it. What the movie purports to be about, it's not about at all. Um, and so it won't take you too long to get into the movie and figure out that it, it seems as if it's about aliens. And so some of you are going, well, I don't like aliens. You know, It's not what it's about. It's about a minister who's lost his faith. And as you're watching the movie, you get the impression that the minister has uh, stopped believing in God. But he hasn't. See, what has happened, there's three key scenes. On one of the scenes, it's Mel Gibson's the minister and Joaquin Phoenix is his brother. And they're sitting on the couch when everything looks like it's falling apart. And Joaquin Phoenix wants some comfort. And the minister, Mel Gibson, he won't give him any. He says, there is no one out there looking out for us. I see, that, that second clause is pretty important. It doesn't say there's no one out there. It says there's no one out there looking out for us. The second key scene is when they're all gathered around the, uh, the, the dinner table. They fixed basically every kind of food you can imagine as they're locked inside of their house there. And uh, the, the, the little boy, you know, he says, I think we need to say a prayer. And, and the, the minister again, Mel Gibson, he says, I'm not wasting one more minute of my life on prayer. He didn't say there's no one to pray to. He just says, I'm not going to pray. And then the third key scene, the key scene of the whole movie, is when I've gone down into the cellar to hide. And they've forgotten the boys, or not forgotten, but in such a rush didn't have time to get the boys inhaler because he is a severe asthmatic. And it looks as if he is going to suffocate from his asthma. And this is the first prayer in the whole movie as Mel Gibson holding his son trying to get him to breathe again finally prays to God I don't encourage this prayer but it's better than the silence his prayer is I hate you don't do this to me again again I'm not encouraging that prayer. And Job doesn't say that. But God can handle the prayer better than the silence. And from that point, everything in the movie turns. God has bullied Job into silence seemingly, but that's not really what God wanted Job to do, is be silent. He wanted Job to continue to fight to continue to pray, even when he didn't understand. So what is it that we ought to do with the book as a whole? As I've said before, I'm convinced that the book is a parable. Um, and I, I gave you my reasons early on. I, I think it, it's because it has that stylized language. Uh, there once was a man. 
in the land of Job, just like when Jesus tells a parable, you know, there, there once was a man who was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. There, a sower went out to sow, that kind of language, those, those duplications uh, in the language. You know, uh, one day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came. That happens twice. Uh, have you considered my servant Job, how he's upright, blameless, fears God, and turns away from me? That happens twice. And then that repetition that's there in the report about uh, the, the loss of his uh, servants and family. I alone have escaped to tell you. I alone have escaped to tell you. It's, it's set up with that stylized language. It has this access to the divine realm, which is absolutely vital that Job not know about. If Job knows about the conversation between God and Satan, then he knows that he's on trial there. And that gives him the, the background knowledge that he needs to be able to endure it's, there's this access. We don't know how they would know such a thing. There's this hyperbole. Job's not just righteous, but he's a saint. He's not just suffering, but he's devastated in here. This, it, it's, it seems like it's a parable. Saying a work is a parable, though, only begins the discussion. It doesn't end the discussion. It's easy for us, especially as Enlightenment Westerners, to think, well, if it's a parable, then it's not true. Au contraire. <laughs> Parables are true. They're just not history. The story of the Good Samaritan is true. It's, it's just not a historical story. The story of the prodigal son is true. It's just not a historical story. The key to a parable is figuring out what is its message because that's what's true about it. It's true that the person in need is my neighbor. It's true that God pursues us even when we're not all that pursuable, which is the story of the prodigal son. What is the message of the book of Job? My argument from the beginning has been, I previewed this a long time ago, what would you do if God were to act outrageously? Now, I've stipulated before that I, I don't think in the, in the long scheme, that in the, the, in the final analysis, it will ever be shown that God has acted outrageously. I don't, I don't believe that. But in the here and now, it absolutely feels like God has acted outrageously. That's the reason there are lament psalms. Lament psalms are a confession that says, I don't understand what you're doing. The friends merely try to justify God when God seems to act outrageously. They have their formula of obey, bless, disobey, curse, and they punch the numbers into their formula. If Job is cursed, he must have disobeyed, full stop, and we're done. God does not agree. We, we, we know Job doesn't agree with this, but more importantly, God doesn't agree it's not that the formula itself is wrong. It's just that the friends don't have all the data that they need to work that formula. The first divine speech is there at pains to ex uh, insist there are factors beyond your sphere of view. There are factors at work here that you just don't know about. What, for example, would we do if we applied their formula to Jesus? You are on the cross. All those who hang on a tree are cursed. Therefore, you must have sinned to get yourself into that position. If that's the formula, and the, the formula is true in the long run, I guess, how do we get out of it is to say there are more factors involved 
than just your formula. And you don't know about all of those factors. It's interesting that Job actually buys the same theology that the friends do. <laughs> Except he just says it's not working. He accepts the idea that if I obey, I ought to get blessed. If I disobey, I ought to get cursed. But I didn't disobey. So why am I getting cursed that it's not working? His insistence to God was to say, show me my sin. And then I'll acknowledge that I'm guilty and I had it coming. And God does no such thing. See, Job actually has to learn the same message the friends have to learn. There are factors at play that you don't know about. Some people dismiss the epilogue of the book of Job as too trite because it's basically kind of a, and they all lived happily ever after, um, that Job gets, uh, he gets a, another seven sons and another three daughters, and, and uh, not just that, but he gets another 70 years of life um, because he lives to be 140, and he gets double all of his old possessions and so forth. And so people look at it and go, well, that's a nice little bow that you've put onto the end of it there. It's not the way that works. The author of this parable is holding out hope that even when we don't understand, God will make things right. What this author is doing is it's another one of the steps along the journey toward the belief in the afterlife. As I've told you before, the afterlife is the ultimate statement of faith in God's justice. It says that the scales of justice are not being balanced in the here and now. And we know God is just. So it just must be that he will balance them in the world to come. And this is the parable's attempt to say, eventually, in the long run, one day, God is going to make all things right. So what do we do with Job ourselves? I would say one of the things that we do is we have to recognize that we are not privy to all of God's purposes. That certainly is the, the, the message of the first divine speech, is to say God is doing things that we just either, either we just don't understand or maybe we just can't understand. In fact, uh, Dr. Carmichael and I, we've, uh, we, we've shared with one another that we, we have sort of the similar view about why uh, there's innocent suffering is that, uh, that if God is going to create a world in which there's the ability for human beings to make meaningful choices, that it may be a world in which bad things have to happen. That, in other words, that the possibility of bad things happening has to take place. And so it may be that, that we're, we're stuck in a system where if we want the ability to choose, we have to take the, the suffering that comes along with choices. That doesn't fix everything. But the first divine speech gives us hope that at least there's the possibility that God knows things we don't know and that we can hang on in trust. But we don't just hang on in silent trust. The second divine speech is there to say, keep crying out in the meantime. That it's important for you not to just justify 
what is happening, like the disciples did with the blind man, and say, he must have sinned or his parents sinned because he's blind. To which Jesus responds, neither. God has other purposes at stake here. We ought not look at injustice and say, you had it coming. We ought not do terrible kinds of rationalizations of natural disasters and look at it and say, well, I can tell why this happened. It's because your politics weren't right enough or your politics weren't left enough. You had it coming. I think we are working with too small of a base of evidence to make those kinds of calls. And so when we see injustice, it's our job to cry out for justice, even if that crying out means crying out against God. Job is hardly different from that passage I have referred to many times in Genesis where God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and says, should I really do this without talking to my friend Abraham? Why talk to Abraham? It is not as if God will actually be dissuaded from what he knows in advance he's going to do, but there's something about the conversation that Abraham needs. And so he allows Abraham to fight with him over an issue of divine justice and to affirm his belief Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God, you simply must act justly. In Abraham's case, as in Job's case, Abraham wasn't privy to everything that God knew. Namely, how many righteous people there were in Sodom? Zero. Job doesn't know everything, so... What is a poor soul like Job to do? Just keep praying. Just keep lamenting. Just keep pursuing. The questions raised in pursuit of God and trying to understand are different than the questions that are raised in rejecting God and saying, I do understand and I understand enough that I'm done with you. I don't understand all that has happened in our world. I don't understand what's happening right now in our world. But I will hold on and keep praying. Even if my prayer is one that says with Job, I don't understand you. But... Even if you kill me, I'm not going to stop. I'll keep pursuing you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, there is no other religion that is willing to air its dirty laundry like you were willing to do in the book of Job. I pray, Father, that when life's challenges seem overwhelming and we just can't figure out what you're doing, that you would hold us close to you, that you would give us a glimpse of you, that we would get that, that message from Job, even if it's a torrent of words that seem to overwhelm us, 
that would be strong enough to hold us close to your breast. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name.